Ahoy, and welcome back, crew, to the Maritime History Podcast. Today, we have reached our Series 2 recap episode. No fancy title today, just a jaunt back through everything that we encountered in Series 2 of the podcast, along with some color commentary and some other thoughts to hopefully round out the discussion and also get us reacquainted with the progress that we have made so far, albeit in a somewhat bite-sized package. I want to loosely cover the chronological events that fall within the time frame that was covered by Series 2. Hopefully, though, things aren't so rigid that it feels formulaic. There are obviously things that are not going to make the episode today, and even things that are interesting or noteworthy that just had to be cut out for the sake of time. Today, I really just want to zoom out, see if we can't make sense of everything that we have discussed in the past 20 episodes, and see some of the broad arcs. As you've no doubt noticed, the length of our past 10 or 15 episodes has continued to grow on average, so there's even more material to digest for this recap than there was for the Series 1 recap, but I think we can do it and still have something worthwhile at the end. Basically then, today I want to revisit the world that followed the Late Bronze Age collapse, moving from there to meet the Phoenicians again and to discuss the ways in which the Iron Age on the Mediterranean spurred on maritime growth, maritime and naval technology, and the related commerce and trade that comes with bigger and better ships and navigation. Then, as you also no doubt recall, the Greeks joined the fray, along with the Etruscans, really a variety of regional actors in the central Mediterranean. Colonization plays a big role in everything that we discuss, and ultimately uh, the geographical expansion that was tied to colony building led to maritime cultures which came into conflict with land-based empires to the east. We have a lot to recap, so let's get to it. In some regards, it makes more sense to start with where we concluded Series 2. We wrapped Episode 40 by talking about the Greeks' final victory over Persia, final in quotes, and this is at least in the Persian War period proper, Themistocles was off the scene by this point, but it is at this point where Athens found itself in the position to well and truly have what we would call a state navy. It's perhaps the first in history that resembles what we would call a state navy in the history of the world afterward. We parsed a lot of that out toward the end of series two. Now, this might go without saying, but we do have to keep in perspective the reality that this navy didn't just emerge out of a vacuum fully formed. Some of the histories that I read in reading prep work for Series 2, they seem to just gloss over all of the build-up, all of the groundwork that had to be laid to get to that point. And they do tend to leave the reader with the impression that the formidable navy of classical Greece just kind of sprouted from the mind of Themistocles, that it was possibly even built in just a few months right before Persia loomed on the horizon and then showed up, and then they almost give the impression that the navy was self-sustaining from that point on too. Presenting things in this way does of course simplify the narrative, but I do want to today try and take all of the details that we discussed in series two, hone them down, 
and mold a solid discussion of how the maritime technology and how everything connected to it slowly accreted to make the Navy of Athens possible. There was a whole run-up to the main event, you might say. Now, rolling back the clock to what we talked about in Series 1 of the podcast, we definitely had a lot of maritime and naval history to cover back then. Just think back to the epics of Homer, for instance, the black ships that covered the shores of Troy, or Khufu's solar ship and the trade empires of Egypt, even the trade empire of the Harappan people, not to even mention the forerunners of Greece and how trade was an integral piece of the Minoan and Mycenaean identities. These things were, of course, ancient history even to the people that played a role in series two, but we can see that they were the foundation for everything that came after. Egypt, the Harappan people, Minoan, Mycenaean, all of these laid the groundwork for maritime development and technology. But from there, we shifted into series two. Series two started back in episode 21 of the podcast, what feels like eons ago now. We had ended series one with the late Bronze Age collapse, as it's called. So then series two picked up after Mediterranean trade had seen a dip following the forays of the Sea Peoples and then the various other catastrophes and uh, even ecological catastrophes that clustered in this period of time. Formerly grand cities and empires withered and the dynamics in the entire region, in the entire ancient world really, shifted in a way that new centers of power were positioned to emerge given time, of course. Now, it's obviously one of the things, one of the main things that we focus on in this podcast, but the more that I read and the more that I study, the more strongly I come to feel that shifts and innovations in maritime technology were drivers behind how the world did evolve during the Iron Age and beyond. It's obviously not that simple. Correlation doesn't equal causation, as they say. The technology didn't drive the change, but it was very tightly intertwined, and we can trace a lot of the evolution and how it all connects together, basically. For me, people needed motivation to even just explore how to improve maritime technology. The motivation in many cases was the potential benefit, the potential gain to be had by increased trade among cities, among regions, and even among continents over time. As the benefits of this increase became more and more apparent, ancient man obviously then saw the uses to which better ships, better technology could be put. These things are mutually reinforcing, they contribute to one another, and then over the course of time, the rate of innovation only increases more quickly, which leads to yet more and deeper change in all of these areas. Some of these changes were even unanticipated, really changes that you could not envision ahead of time. There is also the obverse side of the same coin. When one culture is primed to profit and to grow from maritime trade, you'll always have another culture or another city arrival who will seek to exploit that trade and to turn it to their own advantage. And it's in those points that enters what we could perhaps call 
the ancient naval arms race. So this brings us again back to the end of episode 40, the end of series 2. At the conclusion there, we saw the demise of Themistocles and the things with which he is so closely associated. You'll no doubt remember from that discussion that by the time we reached 470 BCE on our historical timeline, or in that vicinity, Greece, and in particular Athens, had developed what we can really call a state navy. I mentioned that a moment ago. They also had very specialized warships. They had probably the most rigid and defined naval battle tactics that could be found up to that point in history. This is all not even to mention that they had a veritable naval economy and an infrastructure built around that, both of which became necessary just to support the navy. Many historians then do look at Athens as one of the highest peaks of classical culture for the navy aspects and for so many beyond, and it no doubt was that. But I, of course, always think first and foremost about how she was one of the highest peaks of maritime and naval culture, technology, and innovation. So far in our discussion, we've obviously associated these things with Themistocles. He was the kind of figurehead in the lead-up to classical Athens, basically. Today, though, I'm hoping to tie our Series 2 discussion together into a, a nice bow into a more compact package, too, so that we can just remind ourselves and get a, a simple handle on how that naval culture, technology, and even the innovation had all begun long before Themistocles came on the scene. He certainly lended a helping hand. But then we'll see how ancient Greece did not develop in a vacuum, and that how during the time Themistocles was around in Athens, he helped steer the course that would allow those naval and maritime stories to continue evolving and progressing for Athens, for Greece, really for the entire region. To do this, it's now the point where we should uh, hit the rewind button on our imaginary tape player. Go back to the beginning of series two, which as I've already reminisced about a little bit, that was the point where we picked up after the late Bronze Age collapse and the Dark Age, so-called, that followed it. Series 1 focused heavily on the maritime activity and innovation of Mesopotamia, then Egypt, the Minoans and the Mycenaeans, and some other cultures in the eastern Mediterranean, even out to the Harappan people. But then Series 2 shifted focus to what emerged in the Iron Age. All the aforelisted cultures had largely lost their influence, at least on a macro level, by the year 1000 BCE. And at that point, a new culture began to coalesce into a maritime power, or a player at the very least. In series two, we used the simple and universal label Phoenician to describe this culture although that term itself comes from the term that the ancient Greeks used for the maritime traders of the Levant and beyond. The word Phoenician actually carries connotations of the purple dye that was traded in in the city of Tyre, and that's somewhat fitting given that Tyre, Sidon, later Carthage, and many of the Phoenician cities became known throughout the ancient world for their prowess and commerce, navigation, and seafaring. 
the region that we've used the label Phoenician to describe, it was the first region after the Late Bronze Age collapse that really started to coalesce and to start reforging some of the maritime connections that had definitely existed during the Bronze Age on the Mediterranean. Those connections hadn't completely disappeared, but they had retracted, you could say, and things were limited to more short-distance trade until things got a little bit back to where they had been before, until some of the turmoil in the ancient world calmed down and uh, trade could reassert itself. The Phoenician Levantine area of the Eastern Mediterranean, with its coastal cities, its deep history of seafaring, it began to look again to the sea and to use maritime innovation to expand its reach, its opportunities for trade, and of course profit thereby. There began to emerge in the Phoenician connected cities a rough sense of unity based on their penchant for maritime trade. This sense led to relationships and to connections dependent on sea-based trade networks, something that we can see throughout all of history, obviously, but it tends to jump out in stronger and more concentrated levels at certain times and in certain places, and this is one of them. Sea-dependent, sea-based cultures also, they just evolved differently, and they evolved with different mindsets than land-based cultures and empires that we oftentimes see were just on the periphery, and the sea-based cultures bordered the sea, where land-based cultures and empires did not always do so. Now, in making this point about the cultural identity, the cultural way of thinking, it's hard not to compare the Phoenician identity with the identity that would later emerge in Greece in the Iron Age. It was a little hard to make some of these comparisons right back to back during the course of season two. We hadn't necessarily laid the necessary groundwork at that time, but right now I think we can just run through some compare and contrast relatively quickly to give us a good, quick sense. One of the first contrasts that could be made is the one about a sense of unity as a larger culture. Although I should point out, I should clarify, topics like this, they always carry with them a degree of subjective interpretation. Something like this is not easy to define, although there are certain flags that historians look to to get a sense of the distinctions and the differences. A number of writers make the point that where the Phoenician culture was innovative in seafaring and they had a sprawling commercial network, they didn't ultimately forge a unified identity as being Phoenician in any militaristic or sense of a shared identity for expansive empire purposes, I guess you could say. They very much traced their origins back to a mother city, and they viewed themselves as merchants, mainly. Now, they did innovate by likely inventing the trireme, the ship that became famous with Greece more so. But as we saw over the course of Series 2, the trireme as used by Phoenician and Near Eastern Levantine cities, it was put to use by Persia after Persia subjugated the coastal Phoenician cities. Persia then wielded the trireme navies as almost a mercenary fleet sent out against Greece, basically. 
Now, contrast the Phoenician cultural identity as being more merchant, mercantile, not quite so militaristic, although when it was, it was at the behest of a stronger land-based empire. Whereas Greece, Greece is widely held out today as being a culture who, perhaps more than any other in the Iron Age, did wind up forging a common identity, despite having roots as separate city-states. I don't know that this was uh, inevitable, basically. The Persian threat that impinged on the Greek world was perhaps a catalyst. And then you do have the fact that later historians of Greek history, they tend to retroactively fashion things and to make cute, tidy narratives with how they portray the evolution of everything through this time period to an extent. But it is hard to deny the fact that many of the Greek city-states, even in the later Iron Age, they had this view of themselves as being part of a collective group of Hellenes. They hailed from the same area of Hellas, and in many ways they shared common religions. They had just a common root identity, even if they had different political focuses in various city-states, things like that. There was tension, there was competition, disagreement. But when push came to shove, they were able to forge a common identity as being Hellenes. Athens then took things one step further to forge an identity as a sea power in the formal sense of the word. We'll get into that a bit later today. Now, before any of this became a reality, there was the tendency for both the Greeks and the Phoenicians. This is something that we discussed extensively in season two. Their tendency, really their drive to colonize areas that were further and further outside their home base, I guess you could call it. The comparison and the contrast here is in the shades of how and where this colonization occurred, but it is definitely beyond question that both of these civilizations, they used their maritime prowess to carry out their drive to colonize, and this drive, the colonization efforts, played a crucial, a central role in how these cultures developed and in really a lot of how the events unfolded throughout the Iron Age. The Phoenicians got out of the gates first. Their early skill in maritime navigation allowed them to settle colonies far and wide. They were famously able to sail outside the site of land in the Mediterranean, where earlier cultures and sailors, they didn't possess the skill to navigate by the stars like the Phoenicians developed. This allowed them to sail more direct, more extended routes that stretched the limits of ship capabilities, but it also took as much advantage of the technology as could really be done at that time. This leveling up of the navigation skills, of course, then also led to innovation in ship technology. They wanted to push the limits of the technology, see how it could be improved. And this really created a small feedback loop phenomenon. For the Phoenicians, then, early colonization led them to the western limits of the Mediterranean. They were the first to push this far, especially for a culture from the eastern end of the Mediterranean. We saw that there is a lot of evidence for their presence and their ties with Iberia, including their colony at Hodder, or modern-day Cadiz. They had colonies in Malaga, and a whole lot more in modern-day Spain and Portugal. They also developed deep ties to this region for its wealth of silver, 
and other natural resources that were abundant there. Then, Carthage, the colony, emerged as a perfect middle stopping point between the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, where Tyre, Sidon, a lot of the mother cities were from, and then their western colonies where the trade went and then returned from. The natural resources in Iberia and the other Phoenician colonies then feed back into the discussion about ship technology. If you have increasing volumes of goods and resources to be brought from one port to another, then profit and efficiency will be increased if you improve the ships that do the transporting. This is almost exactly what we see with the evolution of Phoenician ships over time. We discussed in series two some of the depictions of Phoenician merchant vessels. These vessels are sometimes called gauloi because they have deep, rounded hulls. And these hulls, this approach to shipping, it allowed for an increase in the size and the carrying capacity of the ships, which is important if you are a merchant. But even more important is it allowed for increased stability as they sailed the heavier seas out in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's great to have a full hold of the ship if you're trying to bring a shipment from one port to another, but if your ship wrecks, it's all a bit pointless, isn't it? So taking advantage of the increased capacity, the increased stability, but also the navigation techniques to take a shorter route through the middle of the sea, this is what set the Phoenicians apart at this early time period. This discussion makes me think back to two shipwrecks that we've discussed briefly in series two. These shipwrecks were good evidence for this type of ship design and for the cargo which it would have carried. The two wrecks known most widely as the Ashkelon wrecks, they show us the torpedo amphorae, which would have carried wine, possibly olives or something similar. These wreck sites, as we discussed, were found off the coast of Ashkelon, Israel, and the ships have become known individually as Tanit, which was a Phoenician goddess and the protectress of seafarers, and then two is Elisha, who was the mythical founder of Carthage. Both of these are perfectly appropriate names for wrecks of Phoenician origin. Unfortunately, at the wreck sites, the actual ships, the remnants of the timbers and the construction design, these have been lost to time. But the contents of the ships were still there, and these can still provide a wealth of information to nautical archaeologists. Now, the drive to colonize and the search for natural resources are what we just covered. But the piece that was left out there is that both the Phoenicians and the Greeks began to do this because their mother cities and their homelands, especially given the location of the mother cities and homelands, they just lacked certain necessities that a growing civilization needs. Potential profit was obviously a driving factor for the merchants, but they can only profit if they can find a market somewhere where the goods will be in demand and where they have customers willing and able to pay. In the case of a Phoenician city like Tyre, for example, they were a coastal city. They only had so much arable land. So as the population grew, they obviously needed an increased supply of food. To solve this problem, Tyrian merchants made use of the dyed purple garments for which they became famous. 
They also used the famed cedar timbers of Lebanon, too. In exchange for these goods, the merchant ships would then return from their journeys with a hold full of grain for the city or a hold full of wine to be sold, other foodstuffs, and luxury goods besides as well. A very similar progression played out in Greece, albeit at a little later time than it did for the Phoenicians. Still, though, they also began to expand through settling colonies, which could then tap into local trade networks in order to gain access to new resources. The Greeks, in turn, could trade their wine, their olives, their famed Athenian or Corinthian pottery, among other things. The Greeks, rather than pushing as far west as the Phoenicians did, the Greeks were the first to open the way to the Black Sea, the Pontus Euxinus, they called it, and it was from there that grain began to flow back through the Dardanelles and the Bosporus into the Aegean. The growth of Athens and other Greek cities, without much farmland, became heavily dependent on their Black Sea grain import, and this became a factor when Persia showed up, as you'll recall, I am sure. The need to import food, and really the import of all sorts of things as a city and a culture grows, it's pretty straightforward. The last point that I want to make here, though, before we move on, is that the balance did then begin to shift both for the Phoenicians and the Greeks once their colonization efforts and the growth in their native regions began to expand to the point where they would butt up against other cultures and other players who oftentimes had differing aims from their own. This, again, probably goes without saying. Every student of history knows intuitively that the only constant is change, but once trade increased, once the profits began to increase as well, the security of the trade itself and of the ensuing profits also had to become more important to everyone involved. Pirates have been one of the constants of history, I think, and I'd wager that it's a safe assumption that rising competitor societies also leads to the need for security. So then, even back in series one, we had a few discussions about how pirates became a problem in a few spots in the eastern Mediterranean, and that, of course, is not going to change once we get into the Iron Age. However, the area that saw the biggest increase in focus was the development of naval technology. This was likely due, especially in the earlier phases, because of that increased need to protect merchant ships. Back in the Bronze Age, there wasn't a very great distinction between the types of ships. They all carried things, they all could carry soldiers and archers, etc. But with the development of oared galleys, even that happened back in the Bronze Age somewhat, but then eventually they would include rams on the front of the oared galleys. So over time, rather than just being a means to transport goods or people or even militaries, over time the ship itself started to become the weapon. This shift led to a separation of ships into designs for more specific purposes, more specialization. The Phoenicians had the deep-hulled merchant ships, as did probably most societies. They had a type of merchant ship 
which was built for carrying capacity and stability rather than for speed. But they also then began to use a pentaconter with a ram on the front. The Phoenicians, though, are also widely credited as the inventors of the trireme, too, which added more rowers, was a little larger, and just was there for speed among most other concerns. Unsurprisingly, the Greek and the Roman historians, they had their own opinions about who truly invented the trireme. But most historians see evidence for this type of ship development coming first in the East, and then followed not far thereafter in Greece. Really, the development of this type of ship kind of kicked off an arms race from that point. Really, though, the bottom line is that trade, the increase in trade volumes and uh, trade routes, led to an increase in naval strength and the necessity of that. They went hand in hand for both the Phoenicians and the Greeks. In the early centuries of the Iron Age, both of these things were still driven by cities who spurred on trade. There weren't really federations or alliances working together to make things happen on any broadly coordinated scale. As we've seen, the Greeks and the Phoenicians operated from coastal areas largely, those who were active in the maritime trade anyway, and this led to increased need for import of food and other goods, which obviously then fed back into the increased need for expanded trade as populations grew and as technology advanced. Naval strength and increasing ability followed. But the stark reality is that at some point, these two cultures were going to run into one another more, and it would happen more frequently. This did then begin to happen in the central Mediterranean, specifically in the Tyrrhenian Sea, which is the sea off of Italy's shinbone, if we rely on the old Italian boot analogy. The area there has the islands of Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica, among others. It's also not too far north of Carthage, and it is a perfect halfway stop for Phoenician ships that were making the long journey west or coming back. So it's in this central region that both the Phoenicians and the Greeks began to settle colonies that were perilously close to one another. They each began to interact with local trade networks that pre-existed their arrival with some of the local peoples like the Etruscans and others. After a while, as you can imagine, the uh, close quarters began to result in conflict. I think it's interesting to note here, too, in passing, that the pressure of the great land-based empires of the East, this had a degree of influence on how the uh, relationship between the Greeks and the Phoenicians developed, too. The Phoenicians were forced to look for more trade outlets once the Assyrian Empire started to pressure them more, and likewise the Persian Empire later pressured Ionian Greek cities in a way that impacted their colonization and how it in turn connected with areas of Phoenician control. So it is all connected. That does make it just more difficult to untangle, but as you know, we've got to try. Something that might help us a little bit is to get slightly more specific on the Greek players before we move on. Greek, the word, is of course the catch-all term. But in this time period, in their own day, 
they all had more specific identities and motivations. So I think it would be helpful to run through a few of these briefly just to get a sense. Although, as we've already discussed, there is the idea that the Greeks also had a shared identity apart from their individual identities. One area that we've already talked about today is the Black Sea and how the Greeks opened the way to this sea as a place for trade and colonization, at least bringing that trade further back west. The Greek city-state of Miletus was the big pioneer in forging this path in principle. Miletus actually founded more colonies than any other Greek city. Many of them were founded around the Pontus Euxinus. Most Greek cities tended to retain a degree of connection to and identity with their mother city. The Milesian Greek colonies around the Black Sea, though, they eventually began to develop a bit more of their own identity after their founding. This is something that we refer to as the Pontic Greek culture. It has roots in mainland Greece and the colonization that founded the cities, but in the Pontic Sea region, they just developed a more unique version of that identity over time, you could say. The big draw for the Greeks who colonized the Black Sea were the natural resources there. Grain, wheat from modern-day Ukraine was among the biggest of these driving factors. You'll also no doubt recall the ties to this region in Greek mythology, with things like the myths of Jason and the Argonauts, their search for the Golden Fleece. In that myth, the fleece was supposedly held in Colchis, which was a real city on the eastern edge of the Black Sea and which Greek mythology kind of treats like the city at the eastern end of how they perceived the world, at least insofar as the sea was concerned, but the sea itself was a central concern in the Greek perception of the world, but that's a whole other discussion. In the end, though, Miletus was not the first Greek city-state to really get into the game of colonizing other regions. The Black Sea frontier was being forged beginning in around the 7th century BCE and then in the decades following. The first Greek cities to begin to colonize further afield than Macedonia were probably those who were from the large island of Euboea. This was a large island off the eastern coast of mainland Greece, but it was so close that it is still considered Greece proper. The Euboeans began to colonize the area of the Tyrrhenian Sea, which we mentioned a moment ago. In the early centuries, there wasn't really difficulty in coexisting with the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were also in and out of that area, but when the number of colonies were lower, the density was also lower, there was not as much conflict. Early on, Euboea established colonies on the island of Sicily, even on the Italian mainland. And they founded the first colony in this region called Pithecusae, which was on the volcanic island of Ischia. This really began the Greek foothold in the area, which would continue on. It would eventually become known as Magna Graecia in time. We'll get to that in future episodes, no doubt, to talk about the significance and the development of this area and its connection to maritime trade. Speaking of the area generally, though, I particularly loved the archaeological discovery that we talked about in episode 26. This was a crater 
made in the colony of Pithecusae. It was painted with the depiction of a shipwreck, which I think is a fitting, iconic testament to the centrality of maritime trade to that colony specifically, but to the region as a whole, too. Eventually, though, other cities also began to establish colonies of their own, even in areas that weren't that far removed from the colonies of other Greek cities. The density just continued to increase, basically. Corinth, for example, founded the famed city of Syracuse on Sicily, within the same Tyrrhenian Sea network as the colonies of the Euboeans and others. Megara, Phacaea, and Rhodes also established colonies in this region of southern Italy, the Tyrrhenian Sea, and all of these seeds would eventually grow into what we said was eventually called Magna Graecia. Of course, the Black Sea and the Tyrrhenian Sea, these weren't the only areas where Greek colonies sprouted up. Plato famously stated that the Greeks lived around the Aegean like frogs live around a pond, and I think that the metaphor there extends to the greater Mediterranean and even beyond, too. You'll also recall the Greek colony in Egypt's Nile Delta, the colony called Naukratis, and the so-called sister port of Thonis Heraklion, which was recently discovered. Both of these colonies in Egypt show strong ties between Egyptian trade and trade with Greece at the northern end of the Mediterranean Sea for this region anyway. And you'll no doubt remember that these ties did exist in the Bronze Age between Egypt and the Mycenaeans. They just have now been reforged in a slightly different hue between Egypt, a different Egypt, mind you and the Greeks who emerged in the wake of the Mycenaean culture. I mentioned the Phocaeans a moment ago as being among the colonizers of the Tyrrhenian Sea region, and they specifically were a major player in the events that begin to see balances shift. Phocaea was a Greek city in Ionia, Ionian Greece, which really is actually in western Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, so it's on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea. It is not Greece proper, but Greeks had colonized cities in Ionia. I hope that makes sense. There's plenty of maps on the website, though, if you want a point of reference. So then, Phocaea and the Ionian Greeks, they were even further east geographically than the cities like Athens and Corinth. It is a bit surprising, then, knowing this, that the Phocaeans were the ones who pushed Greek colonization west in due time, of course. They were the ones who founded the colony of Massalia, which is modern-day Marseille, France, and they really were behind the ties into the Tyrrhenian Sea trade network more than just about any other colony. The Phocaeans did even push as far west as modern-day Spain, so they got almost as far west as the Phoenicians had done, although the Greeks did by no means achieve anywhere close to the same number of colonies or just the same presence in that western extent that the Phoenicians did. The Greeks were at their utter limits that far west. As I said, though, the Phocaeans are the Greeks that really tie everything together, everything that we've been talking about in the past few minutes. They marked the shift in our narrative for series two. 
They were active in the Tyrrhenian Sea network, though for a while they managed to not run afoul of the Phoenicians. But just as the Assyrian pressure had encouraged Phoenicia to colonize more and to set their sights on the sea in years prior, eventually then the Persian Empire had a similar knock-on effect on the Phocaeans, and this rippled into the Phoenicians. In 546 BCE, the Persian Empire conquered Lydia. Lydia had been the previous ruler of Ionia. Power shifted hands, though, and when that occurred, the Phocaeans were brought under more pressure. They lost a lot of the freedom that they had previously enjoyed. They were basically given an ultimatum by Cyrus the Great, but rather than subject themselves to his rule, they decided to just abandon their city in Ionian Greece, and they fled west. They had the ships and they had the means to do so. They also had plenty of colonies to aim for. So it was with this backstory that the Phocaeans relocated themselves all the way west to their colony of Alalia on the island of Corsica. Their sudden influx there, basically an entire city, fled over into Alalia. The influx of people understandably ruffled the feathers of Carthage and even of the Etruscans who were native to that region. The Phocaeans, they didn't help things, they decided to go a bit rogue and to rely on piracy in that region as a means of, I guess, income. As you would suspect, going down this avenue did not help their relations with the new neighbors. Long story short, though, Persian expansionism, pushing the Phocaeans west, eventually led to the Battle of the Sardinian Sea in 540 BCE. This battle is one of the earlier naval battles for which we have good evidence. We talked about it in episode 29 of the podcast. But naval battles, even in 540, they were still largely affairs fought with pentaconters and where archers and hand-to-hand combat took place once the ships got close enough to each other for boarding engagements to happen. We did also see in this battle evidence of ramming techniques start to emerge, and this is the ship-as-a-weapon idea finally documented in the historical record. So, it's episode 29 and the Battle of the Sardinian Sea that, in my mind, basically became the fulcrum in series 2 for us. All the big players had finally begun to interact with one another in the same location, not in positive ways, either. And so the water in our kettle really begins to bubble up nicely for the continued discussion of things like naval technology and tactical evolution, and how the interaction of the cultures of the Iron Age, who all had maritime concerns, came to a head. And uh, we just see the intersection of everything that we had talked about up to this point. As our discussion progressed, though, we realized that it's an unfortunate reality that archaeological evidence for ships from this time period are just quite lacking, which makes it difficult to discuss specific timing with much accuracy. Pentaconters or biremes and triremes both were built to be light, and they were worn out fairly fast, it seems, based on uh, textual evidence. If one of these ships was lost at sea, it wouldn't really be heavy enough to sink so that we would even have shipwreck evidence 
to find anywhere in the Mediterranean. I'm holding out hope that someday the Black Sea and its very unique characteristics will open to reveal a rare gem, but the odds on that are probably pretty long too, and it may be a long time coming if it ever happens. As such, we're left to try and piece together a picture from the fragments of pictorial and textual evidence that we have. In the interest of our time today, I'm going to try to recap, within a recap, the conclusions that Series 2 allows us to draw. The time between 540 and the Battle of Salamis, then on down from there, was basically a naval arms race within the Greek world and in the Eastern Mediterranean. Phoenician shipwrights had likely developed the trireme first, but pentaconters had been around since Mycenaean times. The pentaconter had always been used as a troop transport and as a floating platform at times, but it is in this time period, after 540, that we begin to see more evidence of ramming tactics. 535 at Alalia is the specific first mention that we see of rams used to attack another ship during a naval battle. From there, things progressed rather quickly, it seems. The Pentaconter was still the most widespread and available ship at that date. But we are left to make an educated guess, and a lot of the textual evidence in the record helps us. Thucydides claims that the first trireme was built in Corinth, but as I've mentioned, it was almost certainly a type of ship that first originated in the Near East, and then the Greeks got wind of the innovation. Nevertheless, though, the first time that we see historical evidence for a fleet of triremes being in the service of a single ruler is the trireme fleet of Polycrates. He was the tyrant of Samos. This fact is attested by Herodotus in Book 3 of the Histories. Now, I find it interesting and noteworthy that Polycrates was an opportunistic tyrant, and he actually sent this trireme fleet down to Egypt to fight on behalf of the Persian king at that time, Cambyses. Persia's run-in with Greece had been building for some time then. I find it perhaps even more remarkable, though, that Polycrates almost undoubtedly got this trireme fleet only because he had outside funding. He couldn't have afforded to build it himself. The lack of mention, the lack of evidence, leads us to have to conclude that Greek city-states, even wealthy ones like Corinth, they just were struggling to build and maintain triremes. They likely still relied on privately funded Pentaconter fleets largely, even in 540 and in some of the years following. The trireme fleet of Polycrates is noteworthy, as I said, because the fleet was financed by Egypt, and the ships themselves were probably obtained from Phoenician sources. So the Greek city-states didn't necessarily have any wherewithal to be able to do this on their own. It took the wealth, the old wealth, of Egypt and the Phoenicians. This really leads us to the buried point that I've been trying to make. Triremes and especially a fleet of these ships, which were cutting-edge technology, they were just insanely, prohibitively expensive for city-states. The evolution of the Greek fleets from this point on, though, it gets into theory. And that might be a little bit much for us today. 
I probably will boil some of my thoughts on this down into a member episode that I'll post uh, in the near future, but I'll try to give just the Cliff Notes version today. Member episodes, I think, are going to be a good outlet for stuff that remains on the cutting room floor, uh, but we'll have to see how that progresses. So, the cost of a single trireme in a few different ways is really the center of the story, and then we'll see from there how the cost for a fleet was just prohibitive for a single city-state. It's something that only an empire could really foot the bill for. First, the materials cost alone was high, just because a trireme was bigger than a bireme. Now, the size of a trireme is nothing compared to the ships of modern navies, modern naval standing. But for this time period, triremes were the cutting edge. Then, Apart from material and construction cost, the trireme just required more men to power the ship's propulsion system than was required by any ship before it. The three banks of oars could seat up to 170 rowers at a full complement, and then on top of this there was the traditional contingent of officers and marines, so each trireme at full force would have 200 men assigned to it. Finally then, maintaining the trireme, even just a single ship we're talking, it was an ongoing and a never-ending concern once the ship was just built to begin with. So, you can begin to see how a fleet of triremes would put quite the strain on a moderately-sized Greek city-state. As I've said, though, a moderately-sized city-state in Greece could not even afford to keep up the size of a trireme fleet that came to be required. The maintenance piece alone required an entire infrastructure to be built up as support around the fleet, something like a port for them to utilize, a shipshed complex to store them to do the maintenance inside. One of these was eventually built at Athens to support the fleet that they were able to build. Then, apart from all of this, which is just the physical element, you needed a whole administrative cadre to, well, I guess, administrate. Not even then to mention the roles and the other administration that was required to call up rowers as they were needed and in the place and time they were needed. So hopefully through this, you just get a sense that a trireme fleet, it wasn't something so simple as just building the ships and then rowing them out to sea to try and face off against an enemy. The upfront costs required were enough alone to put most Greek city-states off from even getting the plane off the ground, so to speak. So what was the spur that led to Greece swallowing the cost then? And when I say Greece, I'm sure most of you know that Athens is kind of the leading role in this discussion. I think it's entirely reasonable to conclude that Persia invading Egypt in 525, which was actually far away from Greece proper, this still could have been a trigger for this thing we're calling a naval arms race in this time frame. Polycrates and Samos and that trireme fleet, they were technically Greeks. They were involved in Egypt and Persia's invasion there. But it couldn't have escaped the other Greek city-states, especially those in mainland Greece that Persia had pushed its way into the littoral of the Mediterranean, 
and they had effectively seized the naval fleets of Phoenicia, Egypt, the Levant. Persia had, up until that time, been a landlocked, a land-centric empire. But by adding these fleets, which were the best fleets in the ancient world, by adding these fleets to her arsenal, this opened up new potential avenues for Persia to apply force. If you look at the map, basically, and the areas that Persia had already conquered and brought within her sway, the next logical step for Persia, if it wanted to continue to expand, was into Greece, further west. So the Greeks, they felt that their number was up next, basically. Greek fears were then stoked higher when Persia pressured Ionian Greek cities to also fund and to help build ships, not to be used for Greek purposes, but to be incorporated into the Persian-controlled navy. Greek cities surely understood that with a navy in Persia's control, the Aegean would only serve as a barrier for so much longer. So then, the thinking goes that Greek city-states in mainland Greece, they had a much more acute motivation to start building out navies to just protect themselves. Now, in series two, then, we saw how revolts in Ionia a particular one where Miletus stole, they seized some ships from Persia, these events only served to heighten tensions even further. And it's almost like the first domino in the chain was uh, pushed. This begs the question, though, where does the domino chain truly begin? I don't know if there is a beginning or an end when we get into historical investigation, right? We just have to try and Put some bookends on our narrative, but really, you could trace cause and effect as far back or forward as you might wish to do if you have enough time. And that's really the problem, it's just enough time to do the investigation. It is in this rough frame of time, though, that we begin to see the true evolution of trireme navies. 494 BCE, specifically. This is when the 353-strong fleet at Lade, it attempted to fend off Persia's strength. This was connected to the Ionian revolts in the east. This battle at Lade saw the Greeks fail, but it's still an indicator that Ionian cities, they may have had an early edge on building fleets and just on those types of efforts than um, the mainland Greek cities did. But as we'll see, that edge did not persist for very long. I think the best allegory to help us make a transition here, and really in this period of time, it is how things transitioned, it's taken from a drama written by Aeschylus, or put on by Aeschylus anyway. I don't know if he wrote it down, but it was produced by Aeschylus. This scene can be taken literally if you want to, and it maybe should be to a certain extent. I think, though, that it also can be taken allegorically, and that the transition from a smallish Greek merchant town to the naval power of the known world, maybe in my book, it might have been a more gradual transition for Athens than some histories seem to lay out. But again, when we're talking about events this far back in time, reasonable theories are reasonable theories, and there's always going to be disagreement. The allegory 
slash history that I'm referring to. It comes from the drama written and produced by Aeschylus eight years after Athens won their great victory at Salamis. It's a play called The Persians. And in this play, Aeschylus has a chorus of Persian men allude to the reason that Hellas was a formidable fighting force, one that the Persian king could not overlook. This is before the war actually ever happened. It's early in the drama. And the Persian chorus is trying to tell the king of Persia that he needs to be worried about the Greeks. He asks the question, why should I be worried about the Greeks? And their answer was this. The answer is that in Greece, they had a fountain of silver and that they possessed a treasure, which was as a treasure beneath their soil, a subterranean treasure, you could say. You will recall then, I hope that rings the bell in your mind, that in Herodotus, in the events of history, Athens did strike an exceedingly rich silver vein in the mines at Lorium, right in the lead-up to the second Persian invasion of Greece. It's estimated that this silver strike happened sometime in the year 483 or 482. The date there, as estimated from the writings of Herodotus, is probably too close to the time that Persia invaded and the ensuing naval conflicts there to help us explain everything. At least that is how I read the whole situation here. For me, it seems to be a slight stretch to think that Athens had mined a rich vein of silver and then turned that discovery, that strike, into one of the largest Greek trireme fleets ever seen, and they had done all of that within less than two years. Again, though, the timing on all of this is not precise, so that leaves a bit of wiggle room in interpretation, and many different historians have reached many different varying interpretations. It's entirely possible that things did unfold more closely to the way that Herodotus depicted it. And um, if that is the case, please forgive me, Herodotus. The point at the core, though, is this. Athens did not have a large fleet for most of its early history. And whether the silver strike happened that quickly and led to the fleet, even if it did, the fleet did not spring up out of nowhere. And Athens was not predestined to gain or to have the navy that she did eventually gain. My view, my thinking on this whole uh, question aligns with a few scholars out there, and it's this. Athens probably had some triremes prior to making that silver strike in the mines at Lorium. They wouldn't have had a substantial amount of triremes, mind you. As we already outlined, it was expensive, and Athens was not a particularly wealthy city-state until a few puzzle pieces fell into place to make it such. They weren't a poor city-state, though, either, so I tend to think that they probably had a small fleet, they had some other things at their disposal. Any number of Greek city-states prior to the Persian Wars would have had small numbers of ships available to them. But there was always a point for all of these city-states past which they just couldn't continue to expand the fleet. And this was for a number of reasons, be they finance, logistics, um, just the numbers of people in the city-state and the numbers of people required to man a fleet, to build it, maintain it, etc. 
Something then was required to enter the mix to help turn the tide. Silver was part of the required solution, obviously, the financial piece. But it also required leadership, and the right man for the situation was, as you might recall, a man named Themistocles, who entered the scene and plugged into events very nicely. We talked about him quite a bit toward the latter half, the latter quarter of series two of the podcast. It's open to debate whether Athens did truly just up and build 200 triremes overnight after they found that silver, and after Themistocles had convinced the people to funnel that windfall into building a fleet rather than just into a general handout. As I've said, I lean toward the view that it was just logistically impossible for them to do and build these 200 ships that fast. Not to mention they also had to build out the infrastructure to maintain them and all of that stuff that we've already discussed. I think two years is too short of a window of time, but never say never, and some people do believe that it could have happened that fast. Whatever you think about the technical way that it unfolded, the timing, the underlying point is the same. The silver strike at Lorium, and then the uh, orational skills of Themistocles, these resulted in a huge infusion of state funding into the expansion of a navy in Athens. And this was something that no other Greek city-state had ever done to that degree. Now, the specter of Persia did, of course, allow Themistocles to strike a bit of a Churchillian tone. This may have helped him sway some hearts and minds toward adopting his line of argument. We did also talk about the point that he included in that argument the fact that an old regional rival, the island of Aegina, this island had naval strength historically greater than Athens did. So Themistocles argued Athens should build a navy just to fight this regional rival they had. And I think this argument may have gone a long way toward explaining why Athens built their fleet out finally. They may have had ships earlier than some people surmise, though, for the same reason. As I've said, though, the basic point is that silver production at Lorium, it expanded the money supply in Athens. This was largely spent on building, on operating, and then maintaining a much more elaborate navy and supporting infrastructure in Athens than she had ever previously thought possible. The way that these events fell into place, for me, make it quite possible that something was created like what Barry O'Halloran calls a virtuous economic cycle within the political economy of Athens. There are some similarities to the ideas that are proposed by John R. Hale and others who make the same argument. These focus on the impact that widespread service in Athenian ships had on the democratic institutions of Athens. But you can look at it just from a purely economic point of view also, and this perspective might align more closely with modern Keynesian ideas too. In a nutshell, the idea is that the silver windfall in Athens, it was plowed right into the construction of a navy, and of course all the pieces around the navy that were needed to support it, to keep it running, and to make it effective. This drove economic demand in a way that spread throughout the Athenian economy, and it spurred more growth as long as the demand was there. 
State investment in the Navy itself led to demand for infrastructure around the Navy to support it, also labor to build everything concerned. This requirement provided gainful employment for just about anyone who wanted it in this time frame. That led to demand for agriculture. There was probably increased immigration into Athens as well. The demand for agriculture spurred more trade, which spurred more investment and more merchant activity. Then you have the facet of increasing complexity of the ships themselves, which led to an increase in specialization, the need for production of components, which would wear out over time. All of this, the shipbuilding pieces especially, required innovation on the technological side, too, which of course required more investment to make the innovation possible. So as you begin to get the idea, there was a virtuous economic cycle, obviously not one that would last forever, but with the early infusion of state funding into the buildup of the Navy, things kind of spiraled from there, snowballed, and it really grew the Athenian economy and provided them with a state navy that would become crucial to everything that we'll talk about from this point on. It is now at this point in the recap, though, that I just have to make some more difficult choices. Our entire jaunt through the Greco-Persian War, at least the big one, the second invasion, where Themistocles was concerned, the talk of that invasion and all the naval elements of it there it covered eight episodes or so in series two. We got into so much detail that it's probably impossible to do much justice by trying to summarize the events and all of that stuff. So I'm going to elect not to try that. I think the events of Xerxes invading Greece, the naval battles, and then the conflict at Salamis in particular, these are pretty widely known events. We have a lot of juicy details in those latter episodes in series two, as I mentioned, but if you want those, I think you'd be better served just by going to listen to the second half of series two. We will talk in broad strokes in the remaining time today overall, but going through a chronology of the specifics just would be over much in my mind. So the elevator version of everything else then is simply that Persia absorbed the navies of Phoenicia, Egypt, and the Near East. We said that already. Those people were forced to man the fleets and to sail against Greece. But once Greece had gotten a trireme fleet cobbled together via the city-states that already had ships and then the newly expanded Athenian fleet, they had the tools to mount a stand against Persia it was by no means a sure thing. They were still outnumbered, of course. Persia's acquired navy was still greatly larger than the cobbled together Greek and Athenian navy. But through the incisive leadership of Themistocles and the willingness of some core Greek city-states to fight together, Greece managed to prevail. The course of the conflict saw an evolution in naval fighting tactics. We discussed these in depth in Series 2 as well. The evolution will continue into Series 3, so we will have no lack of tactical talk going forward. Some of the topics that we only skimmed in Series 2, though, are those that I wanted to mention as we close out today. The first is the idea 
that the growth of the state navy did lead to greater inclusion of the so-called lower classes into the Athenian political system especially. John Hale, as I mentioned earlier, he is well known for promoting this idea, and I would highly recommend a read of his excellent book Lords of the Sea. In short, the idea is that a quickly established state navy like the one in Athens it requires so many resources and so much manpower. When these sailors, especially on the ships, the rowers, when they are given the franchise, it changes the political dynamic in a way that many would argue results in an increase in democracy. This contributes to increased prosperity of the middle and lower classes as against the upper class. This knocks on to stimulate need for increased trade then too, which then requires more and stronger protection. You get the idea. The democratic institutions in Athens specifically, they may have made it such that it was the only fertile ground where this phenomenon could have possibly occurred at this time. There are some other podcasts that have adeptly discussed the political realities in Athens. I think of my friend Rob Sims' History in the Making podcast in this vein, and go check that out. Highly recommended for me as well. The idea of the political ramification of the Athenian navy, though, it's a fascinating one. I might cover it in a bit more depth in a member episode as well, but for today, it is a bit surplus to what we are aiming to accomplish and to wrapping that task up. What I want to do to close is to conclude our recap of how Series 2 ended, but for better or worse, I do want to try to weave in a concept of something called, quote, sea power. It's a proper concept rather than just the fact that you have ships and it makes you have power, right? I'll try to define it, but we're going to define it a bit more as we get into Series 3. It comes from the fact that I've been reading more on this theory generally as it was developed and popularized by naval thinkers of the modern era, thinkers like Alfred Thayer Mahan, and then there are others who followed him who've taken this idea and run with it and developed it more fully. The idea can apply to Greece as well, and some historians are starting to do this. The concept, though, as I've said, it comes more clearly into focus as we talk about series three the classical age in Athens and the things that we're going to see there about how her naval empire played a role in the Peloponnesian War and in everything that unfolded in that era. Today, though, I think it would be helpful to try and just lay a little groundwork so we can get a running start into Series 3. The idea of something called sea power, it's somewhat in line with what we discussed earlier how the Athenian state navy was built with state funding, and this led to an economic growth cycle that impacted so much more than just the navy alone. The foundation of it all depended on the navy, though, and on the power that the navy allowed the city to project, not only to defend Athens from attack and invasion, but to project her power outwards however far the political and military leaders of the moment might wish to do. A number of Greek city-states had navies of varying sizes before Athens rose to prominence, 
but I don't know that we would call them state navies. They were largely privately funded, and they obviously didn't have the wherewithal to undertake a defensive campaign like Greece had to do once Persia invaded. Also, none of the cities prior to the rise of Athens had really premised the entire success of a rapidly grown economy and just a base on the navy alone. So in this sense, Athens was the first city-state or nation to hang its entire identity on strength and dependence upon power at sea. Now, the timing of the Athenian shift into being a proto-democracy, this also factors into the discussion. We've talked a lot about Themistocles and how he used his political purchase to convince Athens to divert the silver strike funds into the construction of a trireme navy. This set Athens on the course to becoming a naval power. But then when the true cost of that burden became apparent to the greater city-state, and think here of the efforts to build a new protected anchorage and the naval facilities at Piraeus, once these efforts began to sink in, the city had to fund the shift to naval power, basically. Then, more increased democracy and the expansion of a middle class, tax revenue to fund the state, etc., all these things began to also increase in pace. The real easy way to sum this all up is that once Athens created a trireme navy, the extraordinary cost required to sustain it basically forced Athens to become a sea power empire. And they were the first in the world, the first in history, arguably, to have done this. It's this piece that I have found the most interesting thing to study in all of our sources for series two and now moving into series three. The reality is that Salamis and the naval victory there, it was the first true step toward Athenian sea power in the sense that they were an empire founded and dependent upon the strength of their naval arms. They had started laying the foundation during the time when Themistocles could influence policy, but Athens was far from the finished product, and to some degree it wasn't their naval skill that won them the Battle of Salamis. It was the superior tactical planning that allowed them to take advantage of the location there, yes, but the Persian ships were lightly manned, they couldn't land full blows against the Greek fleet. The superior sailing skill would continue to be built into the future through the development of tactics, drills, and practice. Again though, and with apologies, to get the details of tactics and the Battle of Salamis as a whole, I think it's best to just revisit episode 38. There is so much to digest there. Now, there are some portrayals of Athens as a city-state and as an empire where it saw the future and that it supposedly planned in advance to become a sea power. But much like the portrayals of latter sea powers, like the British sea power especially, these portrayals are a bit fantastic. It's not something that they could have planned for ahead of time necessarily, but the conditions were there to begin with. A lot of other pieces still had to fall into place, and a lot of right decisions had to be made. Both Herodotus and Thucydides, as far as the Greeks were concerned, 
They were depicting the events of the Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian War in respective retrospect, largely so. Thus, they did use their knowledge of how things would play out in Greek history in order to craft narratives that served their ends. And this basically allowed them to know the fact that Athens would become a sea power, and they could weave this back into their narratives and kind of foreshadow the fact that this would be the outcome. But working from the beginning of the story forward, all historians do this, frankly. But even with the so called father of history, we have to take this tendency into account as we try to parse out the record. Basically, then, the careful molding of Minoan and Mycenaean history and mythology into the narratives that present Athens as a true sea power empire, always predestined to be, these narratives were crafted after Athens had become that empire. The writers of these narratives were able to foreshadow the outcome by pulling from prior myth, especially the Minoan and Mycenaean sea strength of past ages. The reality, though, is that Athens didn't morph into that true sea power in the formal sense until well after the Persian Wars had ended and they had become embroiled in a conflict with Sparta and the Peloponnesian League. It's the war we know as the Peloponnesian War. As you might have guessed then, this conflict, the portrayal of Athens as a sea power empire and getting into the theory and idea of what that means, then even just the differing perspectives that Herodotus, Thucydides, Xenophon, and other writers lend to the conflict and to the concept of sea power and naval strength, all of these are going to be front and center in series three of the podcast. We concluded our episodes of Series 2 by looking at the last incidents of the Persian Wars proper, and with the exile of Themistocles as well. Those events occurred well after 480 BCE and Salamis. So in a sense, the end of Series 2 and the beginning of Series 3 are going to overlap a little bit. As such, we might have to rehash some of the episode 40 events as we get the ball rolling in series 3, but I'll leave that until we get into episode 41. The Delian League is a bit of the puzzle for us as we move into the events of the Peloponnesian War. That's going to be a topic of discussion early in series 3, as I have already mentioned. From there, the role of a man named Simon on the Greek scene is going to take up some of our focus. He also became a leading figure in Athens after Themistocles was. We did already meet him in what was basically the final few moments of series 2 back in 459 BCE on the timeline. In order to truly make sense of the transition and all the moving pieces, I do think Series 3 is going to rewind the tape just a little bit so that we can get a rolling start. We might change the angle too slightly if it seems to be beneficial. At the end of Episode 40, I also alluded to the way in which the legacy of Themistocles began to become the rope in a tug-of-war in Athenian politics. You had the pro-Themistocles camp led by the statesman Pericles on the one side. And then there's the anti-Themistocles camp, led by Simon, on the other side. 
So in that sense, naval issues, as championed by Themistocles during his day, they find their way into the center of the political debate in Athens, even after he is dead, which is perhaps to be expected if the political entity in focus is truly a sea power, as we outlined moments ago. Naval tactics, advancements, and all that good stuff as well is definitely going to be a focus in Series 3 also, and I'm excited now to start turning the page into that new chapter with all of you. So then, that does it for our Series 2 recap, and I don't really have much more to add by way of conclusion. I posted a State of the Podcast update episode last week, and in that I mentioned that my aim is to publish episodes more often for all of you. The trade-off, of course, is that these episodes will probably be a bit shorter. I trust that's amenable. And I'm always happy to chat with listeners and supporters via email, or you can message me on social media on a few different avenues there. Finally, I just want to thank you for your support of the podcast. If you found it useful or interesting thus far, a review of the podcast is always immensely appreciated. We also have member episodes available on Patreon or via the Maritime History Podcast member page on the website. So if you're interested in some special member episodes on a variety of topics, do go seek those out um, if it sounds interesting. Otherwise, thanks as always for listening, crew. I'll see you back here next time as we set sail into the uncharted waters of Series 3 and the period of the Peloponnesian War. Until next time. Fair winds and following seas from me here at the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>